Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 62 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And hi again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So the theme for this episode is perfectionism and looking at perfectionism and how it may impact on sleep and some strategies for improving perfectionism so that it doesn't impact as much potentially on sleep and other behaviours. Is that something that comes up as a bit of a theme in people that you see, Moira? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, particularly in females and particularly in the setting at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, like a lot of um, pretty high-flying professionals, busy people um, who have use their perfectionism for good (laughs) and then all of a sudden it comes back to bite them a little bit because when you start to have some difficulty with your sleep it's the same things you use when you're a perfectionist and you're a hard worker and you're a self-starter and you're conscientious all those things it doesn't work for sleep so it's a bit of a cruel irony that we've discussed before but we haven't ever really talked about perfectionism per se have we on on the podcast yeah that's right so I'm really, yeah, really excited to talk talk about it more. And part of my interest too is we know cognitive behaviour therapy is helpful, but we know there's a significant proportion of people who don't respond as well as what we'd like. And so, you know, you and I are always interested in, okay, well, what else could we be doing? How else could we better mm-hmm. our therapies? And I think by targeting perfectionism, I think that might be one thing we could do better. Absolutely. And, and, and maybe it's one of those things that sometimes you do worry about the things that we um, prescribed for instance like so or even things things like the sleep diary or certain instructions you can think wow that the perfectionist has gone over the top with that and and even though the sleep diary is a really standard thing and and particularly in research you can't do research without a sleep diary you know you need data but I as you know I, over the years sometimes in certain people I just stay way 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 away from the sleep diary because it's it becomes over the top and it's just too much and I think it's we haven't really talked about whether that is perfectionistic traits that have plus anxiety that have been too over the top with the monitoring of the sleep diary. Yeah, absolutely. So to help us unpack perfectionism and give us some good tips, we spoke to Jennifer Kemp, a clinical psychologist who works in Adelaide, and amongst her work with clients and other things that Jennifer's involved with, she has authored a book, and we'll talk a little bit more about that once we've finished the interview. So thanks very much, Jennifer, for helping us out. Yeah, sure. I'm really pleased to be on your podcast. I'm really curious about this topic of sort of the intersection between perfectionism and and sleep. seems like there's a bit of overlap. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll sort of get into that a bit. But from your point of view, how do you actually define perfectionism? Historically, perfectionism has been thought of as a personality trait. And um, and that's certainly one way of looking at perfectionism that I find that... uh, kind of limiting though because I'm a behavioural therapist and my focus is on helping people change their behaviour. So if it's a personality trait, then that generally means it's kind of baked into you. There's nothing you can do about it. You're kind of stuck with that. And I don't accept that. I, I really work with people to change their perfectionistic behaviours. And um, yes, I guess they may always have some of the characteristics of perfectionism, but they can do it in a much more helpful way. Perfectionism for me is a set of behaviours or patterns of behavioural responding. They develop out of, uh, because they're kind of negatively reinforced. 
they developed they develop and learned over time because these these behaviors actually take away something that's really uncomfortable for the person so they remove that that um, usually uncomfortable feelings so just to sort of leap into a definition you, you know you're looking at perfectionism when first of all you see very high standards um, but there's not just high standards there's a rigidity about those standards those standards have become they can be obsessional I kind of view perfectionism on a bit of an, a continuum with OCD right out one end. So I think if you're seeing really this sort of perfectionism that really has someone gripped, um, immobile, unable to do anything, then you really need to be looking for OCD and excluding or including that in your treatment. But in that kind of more perfectionism range that you'll see in everyday people, uh, you will see this kind of they've got kind of stuck on needing to, to meet a rigid standard. So this standard is always just out of reach. And it's a standard, I mean, perfect is a very abstract concept, isn't it? It's like, I could achieve that. And when I have, yeah, well, anyone could have done that. I'm just going to kind of dismiss that now like that. I'm just going to set the bar just a little bit higher for myself. So they're constantly resetting that bar higher and higher, so that, um, yeah, it's always just out of reach. And then how I feel about myself is very much then dependent on meeting something that is unattainable. So, of course, I feel terrible about myself most of the time. I can constantly feel like I'm failing. The second thing you will see in people is a, is a very strong fear of failing. So this is this idea that, and when I say failing, I mean like any, any kind of failure. I mean that in the broadest possible sense. So no one wants to make a mistake. Obviously, we'll prefer not to. So sort of mistakes that you might make, but also maybe being like rejected by someone or seen as incompetent or have um, any kind of social embarrassment. All of those are kinds of failures. And we will, as humans, go a long way to avoid those things because we feel a sense of shame and embarrassment when they happen. We do all kinds of things to avoid that. And then a third thing you will see from our people who are perfectionistic is uh, a lot of self-criticism. And I bet you would see this in your sleep clinics. It's like, why can't I do this better? I should be doing this. Anyone could get this right. That kind of nitpicking, really, constantly critiquing yourself. Um, and because I can never meet these standards that I always set just a bit too high. And so I've always got plenty of things that I can kind of pick on basically. So naturally, if those are kind of those three key processes of perfectionism, what you're going to see is a lot of avoidant behaviours, a lot of frantic attempts to run, fight or hide from mistakes and self-criticism. We want to uh, get away from those experiences as much as possible. So I guess I, by viewing uh, perfectionism in this way, I can kind of then say, okay, is this behaviour that you're doing right now that seems to make sense right now in the short term because it's making you feel better because it's meaning that you don't fail in this moment, causing you long-term problems. And that's why it can, we all can see perfectionism can cause people immense problems in their lives, but they keep doing it. And that's where I think uh, personality theory doesn't offer an answer, but behavioural theory does. We keep doing it because we keep getting reinforced for doing it. We keep getting away from failure. And so 
the, for example, the checking and the extra checking and the more and more checking that we're doing is takes us away from failure and reduces our fear of failure. So we feel relief. And so we keep doing it, even though we're working extra long hours, even though we're, it's costing us in our personal life. We, that long-term problem doesn't outweigh that kind of short-term relief that we're chasing. That's really interesting. So if it's, if it's um, not a personality trait or it's, you know, do you feel like it's um, more learned then? Do you feel like it's a, a learned behaviour? Yeah, yeah. Look, you can definitely look at it as a personality trait and I do think you will see it running families and so forth. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that that way doesn't necessarily lead to pragmatic ways of actually treating it as a therapist or in your your practice. Whereas looking at it pragmatically as behaviour and something, you're right, that is learned over time and it's learned from our environment, the context we're in, it's reinforced from the context that we're in um, and, and it's reinforced because it creates relief. So, yes, it's absolutely a learned behaviour. Just to even, like, I'm a psychologist, and clinical psychologist, so I have a lot of learning history from being in psychology and I also supervise a lot of psychology students at the moment. And um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in our profession and it wouldn't surprise me if it was also in the medical profession as well oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because it's it's actually rewarded in fact you almost think it's screened for this kind of high achieving um like there's high achieving and then there's like just constantly continuing to raise that bar so not everyone gets the kind of unhelpful aspects of it but so many of us would fall into that trap and i personally have and um and that's why i'm so interested in this topic because i still consider myself to be you know, a recovering perfectionist it still grabs me at times and won't let go and i'm not sure i'm recovering i'm still still practicing i think because <laughs> you're right the things we need to do to get into any of the professions be it in medicine be it in a whole range of different domains you need that attention to detail to Absolutely. get past the barrier it is to get into the training for professions yeah. Yeah, And then in a sleep sense, one of the things, the paradoxes of sleep is it's one of the few domains in life we can't do better at by trying harder. Mm. And a lot of the examples you've given is just, okay, so how do we succeed with perfectionistic traits or perfectionistic behaviours? It's by rechecking, redoing, ticking mm-hmm. it off, setting a bar. Mm-hmm. And if sleep to sleep well, you've really got to be able to just step back. I'm at ease. I've done my job. My body will take the sleep it needs. And that's a very hard mindset for a perfectionist to to get into, to take that yeah. type of approach. And that's often what we struggle with in a clinical sense. I can imagine, yeah, because you're actually asking people to take a risk that they won't sleep by trying something new. And it can get quite wedded to this is, but this is the way I do it. Um, and this is what's going to work for me. And then like, it's a bit of a leap of faith really, isn't it? To try and do this imperfectly in some way. And that is one of the challenges, and that's sometimes where in in treatment we may use, for example, in my role as a medical practitioner, I might be using medication as a holding strategy to give people that sense of safety and that mm-hmm. sense of enough wiggle room, enough room to get it wrong, if you like, yeah, right, to then right. take on a different way of thinking about sleep because that's more where Moira would come in as, you know, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be willing to look at sleep in a new way. But if you're mm-hmm. just hanging on by your fingertips 
then it's it's too hard. Yeah, a lot of a lot of shame and stigma, and like almost like such a simple thing as sleeping. Like, how do I not know how to sleep? But they need to. People are reassured and say, "Well, it's actually a fairly complex thing. It's and it's super complex when you're trying so hard as well, because it's a this awful, cruel paradox yeah. that the the more you try and the harder you try, the more elusive it becomes. But in everything else they've ever done, including their weight management and their fitness and their career goals, it always makes sense that the harder you try and the more effort you put in, you get the success." But not, but not with sleep. Mm. It's, a, it's it's one of those one of the very few things in life, really, that it doesn't work that way. It's a slippery, slippery thing. Mm. Yeah, how fascinating. You know, perfectionism when you see it, if you like. Mm. But if mm. someone's thinking for themselves, and it's much harder for us to self-monitor. You know, where do I sit on a perfectionism scale? Are there tools you can recommend to people, or tools you might use either for clinicians or have people use themselves? Yeah, well, if you want to use a questionnaire, I know that Aaron Frost has a um, eight or ten item questionnaire. So his multi-dimensional um, uh, perfectionism scale, the MPS, uh, I think it used to have forty-two items, so it was very clunky and really not really handy to use that in a clinical sense. And it also divided those items up into six different scales. One of which was that sort of conscientiousness. Um, uh, organization, which is, I would have thought, on the helpful side of perfectionism, generally speaking. And two of those were also about like parental expectations, which may or may not be the case, and parental sort of pressure. I don't use it clinically because maybe I, you know, I just don't need to now because I can kind of see it in people's behaviors. Like I just ask people, do you set very high standards for yourself? And Oh, yes. So, and do you keep raising them when you reach them? Sure. You know, so people will, will pretty much self-identify in that. Um, in ourselves, we might also notice that really strong self-critical voice that you always kind of, like you never feel good enough. Like you're always kind of picking on yourself for things that you've, you've done or might do in the future. And it's like the sort of inbuilt hyper alert warning system protecting you from mistakes. Um, but it can be really punitive and um, really, yeah, just plain mean, uh, that kind of inner voice. And I would call that kind of your inner critic, your inner perfectionistic self-critic. That's often the thing that is causing people the most problems. How do you talk them through softening that, that inner critic voice? I used acceptance and commitment therapy as my primary focus of the work that I do, but I kind of go deeper and I'm really using clinical behaviour analysis as sort of the foundation of that. So I do a functional analysis of perfectionistic behaviour with people. With the self-criticism, ACT already has a lot of self-compassion kind of built into that model um, and we ramp that up too. So I've taken some, some strategies from compassion-focused therapy and sort of weave that in. So using certain metaphors that help people start to understand that they can speak to themselves in a, in a warmer, kinder tone. I mean, I can take you through one of those metaphors, which might be helpful. So the metaphor that, that seems to help people with the, help the penny drop is the two teachers metaphor. So if you imagine that you are the parent of a child, you may or may not have kids or small kids, 
this child is, um, your child is just starting school, so around five years old, and they're a normally developing child, which means maybe they've got a few areas they're learning that they're not so great on, they're struggling with their reading or their writing or sitting still, and they want to go out and play. And uh, they have two teachers, probably not uncommon in a job share situation at the moment. Now, one of those teachers, the first teacher comes up to your child and says, why can't you do this already? Everyone else has got this done. I can't believe you can't do this. Sit down and do your work. This is not good enough. Ooh. Oh, I have to shake it off a little. <laughs> like I just, oh, can you imagine having someone? It sounds like 1970. Like no, it sounds like 1970 to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and I think it probably still exists too, right? Um, Hope I'm gladly, gladly, I'm glad that it's probably in the priority now because your child also has a second teacher. Um, this teacher's approach is completely different. This teacher comes up to your child, kind of gets down at their level and says, hey, I can see you're really struggling with this. Why don't we go through it together? You show me where you're, where you're coming unstuck. Um, hey, let's just do a few more before we go out to play. Now, which teacher would you guys prefer to have teach your child? The first or the second? Yeah, clearly the second, right. Clearly the second, yeah. Which one of those two do you think would be more likely to help your child learn, grow and develop as a human? So which one of those would sound more like the way you would speak to yourself? The first, of course. Yeah, most of the class, yeah, right? Most of my clients would go, oh, <laughs> the yeah. first. So why is it that we feel like we should speak to ourselves in a way that we would never speak to anyone else and that it is probably not the best way that we're actually going to learn and grow and develop as people? And there's a few things you can notice about that second teacher as well. The second teacher, um, because, it, because letting go of self-criticism is hard for people, we can feel like we need to do it. In order, if we don't, we'll be lazy or, you know, if we... We can feel like it's just essential. We'll be just complete slack asses, basically, if we don't do this, don't, don't, you know, keep on top of ourselves. But actually, if you listen to the, the second teacher, um, not only were they warm and kind but they, and helpful, so they were motivated to help, but they still kept the child on track, on task, you know, let's still a few more before you go out to play. So there is a way that we can speak to ourselves that is kinder and warmer. And I might start with that sort of example to help people get this idea that beating yourself up all the time, it, it isn't as necessary as we think. I mean, that's some of the same thinking about when we set instructions for people with sleep. Often we might talk to them about some sleep strategies, including some sleep hygiene instructions and or maybe some meditation. We might want them to do a little bit of meditation in between when I see them next. And, and it tends to be sometimes people actually maybe obsess over that or do it too rigidly or, some, you know, if someone comes to mind where, she, you know, she did meditation for like eight hours when the instructions were five minutes, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things. So how, talk, maybe talk to our okay. listeners around, you know, how can we get people to take on those sort of principles with less obsession over the detail. Yeah, actually, and when you give me that example of that client, I can hear how that the the um, meditation has become what in act you would call that experiential avoidance. So I, if I meditate more, I'll feel less anxious about my sleep. Yeah. So five minutes is enough. 
still anxious, but keep going. Um, so we want to let people kind of let help people let go of that control agenda, basically. That idea that um, in order to be okay, we must not have these kinds of so-called negative states. So we must not feel anxious. We must not feel upset, um, sad, angry. There's it, it, kind of a, an understanding that, that humans seem to have developed that it's bad to feel that way. And so we must do all these kinds of things to get away from those experiences. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, we are teaching people that you can do the things that are important to you even in the presence of these uncomfortable emotions. And changing your perfectionism is an example of that. So transforming um, and ch changing your sleep habits would be an example of that. So trying something new is hard. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel clunky and it may not work. So um, how can you make room for those uncomfortable experiences? How can you sit with the uncertainty that you're going to sleep? If you can't, well, then I guess it's going to happen. So we have to sort of sit with that uncertainty and then somehow allow ourselves to fall asleep, right? It's helping people work through that and build up. You could call it stress tolerance, or but, but we would call it that acceptance, that ability, that willingness to feel uncomfortable in the service of the things that are important to you in your life. Some of the work we've published is on mindfulness. So using mindfulness much in the same way as acceptance commitment therapy, you know, they're both metacognitive techniques. Yeah. And I think in some respects in this area, ACT is probably more accessible and more tangible and probably a more practical sort of solution. Yeah. Whereas mindful, mindfulness can suffer from being a bit abstract sometimes. Yeah. But we're trying to get people to the same place, if you like. Absolutely. In ACT, mindfulness is part of that, that framework, a really, really important part of that framework, being able to kind of be in the present moment with your experience and understand what's going on for you. Personally, I've never been able to maintain a daily mindfulness practice. So I'm a busy person and I get very, you know, like running around and I've never been able to sort of sustain that effort. So I think there is a barrier there for some people. But you can practice um, dropping into the present moment and checking in with yourself as a form of mindfulness, just even in that moment, like what's going on for me right now and what am I experiencing right now? And that sort of, I would call it like everyday mindfulness is is, is probably more accessible, honestly. Yeah, and that's what we found actually, what mediated improvements both in sleep and quality of life mm. was being mindful across the day not the minutes spent in task-orientated meditation. Yes. <laughs> and that actually yes. didn't correlate so well with the outcomes. Yes, absolutely. I can see that would be true, yeah. You know, what's the research showing that these techniques are helpful? I think the research in terms of treating perfectionism is definitely emerging. It's re only relatively recently that people have sort of moved away from it, that kind of baked-in personality trait model and started to say, hey, what could we change about this so some of the earlier research in sort of last 10, 15 years was around CBT and applying CBT. And of course, acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion-focused therapy are, are sort of um, third-wave therapies. So they've sort of developed from their cognitive behavioural framework, um, their behavioural therapies ultimately. So uh, there is research, there's only... There's two studies, I think, that are randomised controlled trials. Um, uh, Clarissa Ong and Mike Tuig have done those. One of them focuses in on acceptance and commitment therapy for perfectionism just in itself. 
The other one has used the same group but looked at it from a different angle and looked at it uh, for, as self-compassion um, and the elements of self-compassion that were woven into that intervention and how they changed, and both of them found some significant results. There's a great paper called Perfectionism as a Transdiagnostic Process, which is one that I often refer people to. Well, it's been fantastic talking to It's something we talk about quite a bit in the sleep field. Um, it's certainly uh, something we've noticed that people do have you know, perfectionistic tendencies and, and behaviours and have always, I must admit, sort of thought of it as a personality trait, but, um, but obviously it's, a, it's different different models. Just in the final sort of, I guess, the final word to you, is like any, anything else you'd like to um, just add or summarise really with um, just for our listeners as we sort of as we close out? Well, I think there's probably one more thing I, that I can think of that might be helpful, and that would be that, well, you can change perfectionistic behaviour. And there's always a paradox in doing so because perfectionistic people will try and change their perfectionistic behaviour perfectly, just like they'll try and change their sleep behaviour perfectly and want to have those perfect eight hours or whatever it is that they're uninterrupted sleep that they're aiming for. I tend to call them perfect forever goals. So I work a lot with people with chronic illness. Some of them have sleep apnea. Some of them have a lot of weight management clients. And there's probably many of them also have sleep problems too, but they do this thing where I will say, so, you know, what, what do you think you'd like to change? What did you, what would you like to work on? And I say, I'm going to go for a walk every day starting tomorrow. And I'm going, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Like from if they were regularly exercising already, sure, but they're not doing anything. So I think the same with sleep. I, I say, okay, I don't actually say, no, you're not. I say, hmm, how could we set that goal in a way that's perhaps less like aiming for perfection because you're sort of setting yourself up to fail there. The first time you don't go for a walk, you failed that goal because it was like all or nothing. So how about over the next two weeks between now and when I see you next, you focus on increasing, pick this behaviour, going for a walk, and I'd like to see how many you can do. And let's focus on increasing the frequency of that behaviour over time. So maybe you'll come back to me and you'll say, oh, terrible, I only walked three times. I'll go, great, three times is a lot more times than you did. How did you, how is that possible? What made that work? How could we make that four or five times? And I've had a lot of success sort of getting around that perfectionistic goal setting in that way. Sort of, it, it sort of just bypasses that and, we, and they get to still feel a sense of achievement, a greater sense of achievement, frankly from doing that so I think that that's a strategy that applies to all behavioral change basically I use it for absolutely oh very fantastic great pearls of wisdom it's been wonderful talking to you today Jennifer we really appreciate your time and insights oh great no it's been great talking to you guys I'm going to go back and uh, check with my clients now who are struggling with this stuff just how much they're struggling and how perfectionistic they are about it what did you think about Jennifer's way of thinking about perfectionism as being a pattern of behaviours rather than a trait. Yeah, well, I think that was interesting because I must admit it's, I mean, all my training and all my my thinking around it has been along the lines of it as a personality trait. But it's, I guess it's a really what, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a construct really, isn't it? And whether we, if, if we can, we can just call it a construct and whether it's sort of behaviourally based or whether it has become it's something we're just inherited and it's part of our sort of innate DNA 
I think that's as she indicated too. It's not like she's saying that she's it's wrong to think of it as personality trait. Just that she thinks it's more helpful. And I agree that to think of it as a behavioural thing, that therefore it's much more modifiable. Um, and I, I, I think like everything, like everything we talk about in the sleep field and, and other things, it's around education, isn't it? It's around education and awareness and having professionals to help you point out perhaps things that might be going on and say, you know, and, and I think every single person I speak with around their insomnia and we, I say, do you, you know, they self-identify as, I shouldn't say every single person, so many do identify as a perfectionist and not so much in that they, they think it's not so much in that they're grooming or that they're perfect in every way. And it's just that it's talking about the standards, like just having very, very high standards and really high expectations of yourself. Brackets, really critical as well, like the inner critic, which, she, which Jennifer spoke very eloquently about. And I thought that was, I think that's really helpful for people working in the sleep field or people listening to this, if you do have this sleep problem yourself, to identify how much of it could be related to your expectations and, and t- tendency towards perfectionism. If people are looking for some resources, there's some really nice resources. Jennifer herself is about to publish a book called The ACT Workbook for Perfectionism. And having listened to Jennifer and listened to those principles, I think that's going to be a really helpful workbook for people. So I encourage people to look at that. We've previously posted some resources from the Western Australian government. There's a workbook on perfectionism, some really good resources. And we've talked as well about the online resource of This Way Up and some online mental health courses, again, on perfectionism and anxiety and stress management and managing insomnia. They've got a good range of courses. Yeah, I think her book will be really useful. So thanks, Jennifer. We're going to lean on your expertise. So what's a clinical tip when you're working with people with perfectionism? If you're a clinician working with people on sleep, I think you've got to start by what you want to model yourself. One of the key things that people who are perfectionistic struggle with is being compassionate towards themselves, being kind, and they tend instead to err towards that sort of all or nothing thinking. If I don't do it perfectly, I've failed. So really as a clinician you can model a different way of approaching that it's very easy to kind of hand out a behavioral prescription like go away and do this within that is this sort of implication um, it, and it may not be coming from you it could be definitely heard by the client though um, do this do it perfectly do it every day you know from now until forever and so people can feel that that's not achievable because perfectionistic people aren't just the high achievers, they're also people who are avoiding a lot of things in their lives and they may not do that thing because it just seems too hard. So as a clinician, you can break that down and say, hey, I think this would be a really good idea for you to try. Um, how many times do you think you could try it and model a kind of compassionate approach? Uh, it's okay if you don't do it every time. Let's see if we can kind of increase this over time. When I next see you, you know, come back and tell me how you went. And I always have people keep track and measure the things that they're aiming towards so that we get to reward them. So how many times did you manage to do this particular sleep hygiene strategy rather than how many times did you not? So we really want people to, to be focusing in on their successes and that I think builds a sense of not just achievement but also kind of a compassionate approach to this, that it's okay not to do it right straight from the bat. 
So we're up to the pick of the month already. What's your pick of the month this time, Dave? So in continuing to explore my professional development in looking at complex trauma, borderline personality disorder, I've come across a really nice series of videos on YouTube developed by McLean Hospital. McLean Hospital is one of the um, satellite hospitals from Harvard Medical School. And a couple of years ago, they had a grant to develop a series of videos for family and people with borderline personality disorder and complex trauma, just explaining what the condition is, strategies for dealing with it. And the particular video that I like is the application Mm. of mindfulness in the treatment of borderline personality disorder. And it's really practical, really well, quite well grounded. And, you know, I really enjoyed not just that particular video, but I wanted to highlight that one, but the whole series that just runs through. That's a great resource, not only for people who may have that issue themselves, but for friends and family. To help them yeah understand. i agree it's excellent thanks um you sent it to me and i've had a little look and i think it's yeah, really I, I highly recommend it to our listeners well my pick you, of the month, i think i'm a bit time poor at the moment so pretty, pretty much it goes on the theme any kind of reading i'm doing preparing for the podcast so again my one is about the, the, the theme and i do think it's a really elegant paper from um Sally richardson or Sally, i'm not sure i should know how to pronounce her surname uh, well-known researcher in australia and uh, Michael Gratisar, um, Sally used to be in South Australia, now she's in WA and was supervised, I think, um, by Michael Gratisar. They certainly have a lot of papers together. So it's in the Journal of Adolescence from last year. Um, and I did notice it, I actually noticed it last year, but it's good. Um, I was looking up again recently around people who've been publishing in the area of sleep and perfectionism. So they had a paper, um, Perfectionism and Insomnia in Adolescence, the Role of Vulnerability to Stress and Gender. So it was really good. They looked at 281 Australian participants, like young, young people, aged between 13 and 19. Um, and they did find that, you know, vulnerability, vulnerability to stress accounted for the relationship between self-oriented striving perfectionism, which we see all the time, self-oriented critical perfectionism, and insomnia symptom severity in females but not males. The younger the people are when we can identify and have early intervention, I think people are far better off. So I think... I, I will put that in the show notes, the, the link to this paper, because it's, it's just a really good thing and it can, you know, really at least partly explain that preponderance of insomnia in adolescent females particularly. Uh, and I guess we're really interested in that link with sleep and mental health, really looking at the protective role of sleep. That's what we're sort of always striving for. So the more we know about that, the, the better. And I guess that's, you know, because really what we're all about, you know, especially my focus is on a lot of, you know, public health and prevention. Um, so, yeah, it will really help us with both the sort of prevention and treatment of insomnia in young people. So well, well done. Yeah, I sort of saw that too and thought, you know, it's the, the group that we see of coming into the last couple of years of high school, high expectations on themselves and mm. that perfectionism can really sort of ramp that up and we, we're seeing them when that sleep starts to not work that well. So what's coming up in future episodes, Dave? So although I've been promising an episode on fatigue, it's still something I'm working on. So that's a work in progress. And next episode is going to be on the social determinants of sleep. So looking at um, is there luxury or a sense of privilege? Is sleep only something that some people can access? So up your alley, Moira. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that one. And given what we talked about in this episode, I think we do need to get someone on to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. So that's going to be on my hit list of episodes to develop as well. 
got just the guy in mind. So thanks for listening. Remember to send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And, you know, we're always keen to talk to early career researchers and help people hear about your work. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe and tell others about the podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.